Hi everyone, I'm Matt Blair, and this is the Conservation Storytelling Podcast. Welcome to the shared platform where we have conversations with a diverse range of field-based voices and talk conservation. Join us as we share ideas, create awareness, and fulfill curiosity about conservation in Africa. Welcome to the community. It's great to have you here. Today is World Environment Day, the 6th of June 2020, and the theme for this year's Environment Day is celebrating biodiversity. Given our recent months, it is clear now more than ever that our relationship with Earth has not been a healthy one. But it's not all gloom, and for the first time, we've come to realize as a collective that the way we've been acting and the choices that we have been making need to be addressed. I think we need to slow ourselves down and realign our values with what is important, and that is our environment. Without a healthy environment, however resilient we as humans are, we will not last long. Make time today to enjoy nature and make it a part of your day every day. Anyway, this week I spoke with Phil Jeffrey, the man, the myth, the... Well, you can go and find out more about Phil on the Safari Stories podcast, where his friend and business partner Tyrone reveals who Phil Jeffrey is. Apart from setting up an operation in the Kafui National Park, Phil and his friend Jeff de Graffenried packed their backpacks and walked 160 kilometers across the Kafui. The objective was to raise awareness for the Kafui ecosystem and to witness firsthand what was happening in these remote pockets of the Kafui. I spoke to Phil from their half-built camp where the network connection was not the greatest and the hippos kept interrupting our conversation. Welcome to the Conservation Storytelling Podcast and it's great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, great. Uh, thanks for getting in touch, Matt. Good to, good to finally meet you and uh, yeah, great to chat about Kafui and conservation. Phil, before we get into it, tell me about the last hour of your day. The last hour of my day. Well, I'm, I'm actually sat out here on the deck overlooking the, what we call the Eden Lagoon out of, out of the camp. And we had, we're busy rebuilding camp of all years to do it. And the staff spotted the lions at about four o'clock this afternoon. So we popped out and had a watch and uh, they killed a small puku and we've got seven young cubs that were that were feeding, so it was uh, yeah, fantastic, fantastic evening. Then, then rushed back to come and chat with you. Sorry to pull you away from that. I mean, here I'm sitting in cold Harare. Uh, I hope you've got a cold mosey in hand as well. It's uh, I've got a cold mosey in hand and another one on standby. <laughs> Good man. Well, so take us through the Kapuri National Park. Give us a little bit of background into where the Kafui is, the size, and pretty much what it means to you. The Kafui mat is, uh, for anyone listening who, who doesn't know the Kafui, it's Zambia's biggest national park. We're in western Zambia. Uh, one of Zambia's three flags of national parks, if I can say so. And one of Africa's largest, if not the largest. Lots of people like to compare it to the size of Wales or Belgium, but uh, I've gone for Sri Lanka, so just to be a little bit different. So imagine a park the size of a country. Um, 
sorry, the hippos are just interrupting there. But, uh -huh. and you know, that's a few hundred kilometers north to south. Its main feature being the Kafui River. A lot of the riverine habitat and the dambos that come off of it, it's, it's just a magnificent wilderness area with very few people and just a whole lot of wildlife and wide open spaces. It is an incredible park. I haven't spent a lot of time in the park, but I've frequently passed through the park and spent a bit of time in South Park in an extreme north. Tell me why, personally, what does the Kafui mean to you and why you've pretty much committed your early stages of your life to protecting the Kafui? Why does it mean so much to you? I, you know, I had, you know, growing up with my, my dad, who is a, a wildlife biologist himself, I spent uh, a lot of my early years following him around Zambia as he would do his, you know, aerial surveys or game counts in various parts of Zambia, Kafui being one of them, in particular the Kafui Flats. Got fond memories of flying low level with my old man, counting let's feel above the Kafui Flats. And so it was a park that I'd become familiar with as a, as a young boy. And but funny enough, when I, when I finished school and started guiding, having been brought up my early years in the Luangwa Valley, I, I intended to go and work in the Luangwa. But at the time, there was, you know, for an 18-year-old sort of green behind the, behind the ears guide, there, was, there wasn't much work. And I, I got offered a job in the Kafui and thought I'd take it see out the season and reapply for work in Luangwa the next. And, and that was, gosh, that's uh, almost 17 years ago now. And so, wow. yeah, very quick fell in love with the place and decided that it's where I, where I wanted to be. It's, uh, it has a unique, a unique feel to it and yeah, somewhere I, I'm very much attached to. No, it is an incredible park. I was saying earlier, we, Last year, we were fortunate enough to come and spend a little bit of time up in Busanga. And I know you guys have got a camp up there. It's an incredible, incredible park. Sorry, is that where you, where you are now? It's 60 kilometers southeast of Busanga at the moment. So the Busanga, the Busanga Plains has often been referred to as the jewel in the crown of the Kafui National Park. And, and rightly so. It's, it's absolutely a unique ecosystem with some incredible wildlife, incredible diversity. But, you know, more and more other parts of Kafui National Park now are becoming prolific with wildlife. There's some, some very good camps and lodges around. And the Kafui River is, is a real gem. And what always strikes me most for first-time visitors to other parts of the Kafui is how how surprised they are at the size of the river itself. Yeah, it is big. Um, it, it, always, it always takes people um, by surprise. And uh, so coming off the river, you've got some fantastic tributaries. You've got the Lafupa River, you've got the Lunga River. You go a bit further downstream past the Hook Bridge, you've got lots of you know, seasonal streams, the Luansanza, the Shishamba. Uh, and they support a, a lot of wildlife as well. So whilst the, the Bustanga is, you know, the, the, the jewel of Kafui. So with these beautiful pockets of 
diverse and protected ecosystems within the park, there's obviously a growing need to protect these sections. Tommy, in your 17 years or your experience in the park, what has been the biggest notable factor to to drive you towards protecting the park? It's a it's a good question, Matt, and I think there are many different answers to that question. But in in a nutshell, it's it's a vast landscape, and I think it, it, it's widely widely recognised that whilst our particular authorities do a brilliant job with with what they have, they just isn't the resources to protect this enormous landscape. So more and more conservation organizations have been cropping up to assist the department's efforts in preserving the, the park and the areas. So yeah. what we're seeing now is actually a refreshing take on conservation in which there's a handful of organizations that are actually now working together, seeing eye to eye, helping to achieve a common goal, which is ultimately the preservation of the Kafui National Park or the Greater Kafui National Park, should I say. And, you know, those who are familiar with the conservation, you know, the, the history of conservation, excuse me, in, in recent years, there's been a lot of a lot of politics in conservation, people not seeing eye to eye. And so it's really refreshing that we have a, a handful of organizations working together towards a common goal. And so we, we're just pleased to be a part of that and where we can. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a changing landscape in that regard. And, and we're glad or excited to be a part of it. Yeah. So that leads me on to... Basically, a couple of years ago, you did a walk with a friend of yours, Jeff de Graffenried, across the Kafui National Park. Would you take us through, basically, what was the driver for the walk and take us through the walk itself? Yeah, no, thanks, Maps. The walk we did around about this time last year. You know, the Kafui National Park, whilst it was established in 1950 round about then it was actually it's it's its origins were in the early 1920s the concept uh, and jeff is a good friend of ours and supporter of musagesi conservation and he, he just loves the park so he he said well why don't we do something to help raise awareness and so we started looking into the park and the history of the park and we realized that actually it's almost a hundred years now since, since the park had its first beginnings as a, as a sort of, as a game reserve or a wildlife area before it was proclaimed a national park in the 1950s. And, and Jeff is a, is a great guy, a bit of a madman, but you know, we we love him. And, you know, well, let's let's walk a hundred miles for a hundred years of conservation and use that as a tool to to not only raise awareness but uh, also to just explore the park and and maybe uh, set foot in areas that i've always wanted to to see or to go to and so we thought okay cool and so we decided to to take on this walk and we also 
thought, well, let's use it as a, as a tool as well to not only raise awareness, but if we treat it as a transact, if you like, and, and measure the presence or absence of spores or footprints or human activity or direct sightings of wildlife, we could actually use it to kind of contribute to, to the understanding of some of these areas yeah. where people don't get to go and see. Um, yeah. So we, we did quite a lot of preparation in, you know, leading up to the walk and we did, yeah, we did just over a hundred miles in, in a week. So it certainly wasn't uh, huge distances on a daily basis, but it was, it was interesting walking, you know, slow going in some, some, some spots we, we carried all of our kit with us okay. and had a few resupply points along. But for the most part, we're walking in the dry interior. So we also had to carry, you know, eight to 10 liters of water each for every couple of days. So we were, we were carrying a great deal. So we didn't cover huge distances on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. And tell me, did you, did you come across much game? Did you have any close, close calls, any incidents with any game? I, I'm disappointed to say we didn't have any close encounters whilst walking. I mean, we saw our fair share of, of, of wildlife and interesting birds and signs, but the, the most interesting or sort of unnerving times were at night sleeping around a campfire just in the open. We, we didn't carry tents, just a roll mat and a sleeping bag. So we slept around a fire every night and, uh, a few nights we had the hyenas come very, very close. We, we had a hippo come crashing, not quite through the campfire, but very close by. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it kept us, certainly kept us on our top. Wow. So when you were sleeping, did you sleep on a watch system or was it just every man for himself? The watch system was, was our grand idea, but uh, come the end of a long, hot day, everyone sort of fell asleep. But generally speaking, we'd wake up myself or the the scout and stoke the fire a little bit but uh, it, it was lovely actually it, it it was just a real you know a rare opportunity to wilderness areas and yeah absolutely the time the scouts that were with you was Lepoko and Yuram that's right yeah Yuram is one of the young scouts one of the new recruits that we sponsored through training with national parks okay. whilst Yoram is a seasoned wildlife police officer with with many many years under his belt of patrolling these areas so it was a, a really good team and their help was invaluable you decided to climb the highest point in the Kafuri national park the Mutumbwe ridge tell us about the climb you know Matt, it, it's somewhere i've you know we can see it from where we live in the park we see it about 60 kilometers away from us on a good day Oh, wow. uh, when the air is nice and it's long been a fascination of mine to see what it is uh, and find out what's there because as far as i know there's just an old trig point because you can't even sit under a, a prohibited airspace okay. for the zambian air force so you can't even see it from from the air so it it's it just been uh itch of mine to get this line across the northern Kafui from sort of the southeast to the northwest. This iron ore deposit was perfectly 
position for us to get up there. And if I remember, was it the first, it was the first night actually where we climbed it and we were laden with supplies, you know, water and food and all sorts. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, sound high because it's only between three and 400 meters higher than the surrounding, the surrounding landscape. So it's not an enormous climb. Yeah. But uh, we we weren't prepared for how steep it would be. There was a, a sort of gradual ascent as we crossed various dambos and grasslands and, and woodlands and we could start seeing through the Miombo, we could start seeing the this huge iron ore deposit and eventually we got up to these sort of scree slopes, if you like, with uh, some beautiful vegetation on it and yeah we set off trying to climb it and the whole idea was to sleep on top yeah. but we climbed this ridge it was essentially sort of a, a knife edge at the top so there was nowhere flat enough or horizontal enough to sleep it really was a ridge and so we we we, we got to the top and enjoyed the most incredible views of the Kafuri National Park and we could see the river many many kilometers away and yeah we just spent uh, a good a good long while enjoying the views and what was beneath us before unfortunately having to walk back down sort of halfway and uh, break camp for the evening but yeah i was disappointed not to sleep on top but it was certainly worth worth the worth the, worth our while yeah. Oh, amazing definitely so you you got up there on a good clear day to be able to see the river at least though yeah, no, fantastic. It was it was this time last year, so it was still fairly clear. A bit of haze from seasonal bushfires, but for the most part, beautifully clear. And uh, I even took my Zambian flag up the top just to just to, <laughs> just to have a photo of the, you know stake my claim to uh, to the mountain. Oh, well done, well done. The good old Phil Jeffrey trademark. Did you not carve your name into the rock? I hope you didn't. Uh, I'm not that much of a delinquent, Matt, but uh, <laughs> it, it crossed my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, what was the on? So for the duration of the walk, how long did it take you? So we we covered the hundred miles in about seven days. Okay. So we were doing yeah, huge distances on a daily basis, but we we did it over a week. We we took our time and enjoyed the enjoyed the landscapes and the scenery and and uh, yeah we took it all in sure and for what is what was the most notable notable threat to to the kafui that you discovered on your walk good question maps you know again the if i can maybe answer this question in a sensible way i think we i think we we know what the major threats are generally speaking in terms of illegal bushmeat trades you know poaching for ivory or pelts for large carnivores but for me what what really stood out was the lack of development and the lack of incentives for development and you know the sure you know poaching is a threat illegal wildlife trade is a threat but you know one of the surest ways to combat that in this type of landscape and this type of environment is to is to develop the park and i mean we walked through 
many, many, many miles of pristine, beautiful wilderness areas. And, you know, I just couldn't help but think, gosh, I'd love to put a fly camp here. Or I'd love to put a bush camp here. Or, you know, wouldn't this be great for a, you know, for a walking trail? Or, you know, there was just yeah. one after the other of, of opportunities. And I felt, on the one hand, I felt excited that these opportunities are out there and that they exist. But then I also felt disheartened to know that actually, you know, in our current climate that we live in, there's, there's not much incentive to, to do that. And so I think we've got to work together as conservationists to, to stimulate appropriate development that, you know, that is beneficial for these wilderness areas. You know, I think, you know, we can do more conservation through sensible development than than just just trying to go head to toe or head to head with 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 poachers i think i think we need to to take a multi a sort of multi-pronged approach indeed boots on the ground are important but so is revenue and so is development and so is you know, so is tourism and you know i think we're all feeling that more than ever now with with obviously with the c word so yeah <laughs> that that was biggest, uh, that was my biggest realization you know walking through these areas is that actually you know for as much poaching as there is there's so little development and that is a treasure on the one hand because we all love the wilderness but there comes a there's a fine line between keeping these areas void of development yet vulnerable to illegal activities and having a level of development which preserves these areas and, and makes them accessible to to people who who are willing to pay for the experience and to and to help in preserving it absolutely i think that's a that's a very it's a very valid and broad broad approach that where on one hand presence is definitely a deterrent but also an attraction for for local community members to get involved in the development and obviously obtain some sort of livelihood so one you're looking for presence and the double called it the, the double win of being able to engage engage these people and then there's the other side where like you mentioned it is a privilege to be able to still have these wild undeveloped areas so yeah it is i think definitely as conservationists it's a fine balance between meaningful purpose purpose driven development as opposed to capital-driven development i suppose yeah absolutely and you know matt we're, we're very fortunate in 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 zambia where for the most part our parks have got very well thought out management plans which have zoned these areas into wilderness areas or you know special conservation areas or intensive use zones and for the most part it's very intelligently and thoughtfully put together and planned the biggest challenge is the implementation side of it you know the lack of resources you know uh, 
challenging investment climates or, or whatever it might be. So the framework is there, I have to say, to achieve that balance, as you say, of having a level of human footprint that helps to preserve these areas, but doesn't detract from the wilderness aspect or the preservation of them, but, but really adds to it. Um, so the framework is that, but the, we just fall short on, on the implementation side of things. But yeah, we remain optimistic despite, uh, despite the, current, uh, the current climate. Because I think that's, that's the other aspect to look at as well is, I mean, I know we've just come out of the conversation between the, the dreaded C word and conservation on my previous series, but it's going to be prevalent for a while to come. In times like this, just from a personal perspective, what other avenues do you see conservation being enabled through other than tourism? Well, I think we've got to look outside the box, you know, as, as you alluded to earlier, Matt, you, you know, these times are forcing us to all think a bit differently, think outside the box, and we've got to drive initiatives that engage with people from a, from a distance. You know, if they can't travel, well, how do we engage with people to make sure that these places still hold meaning to other people? Because at the end of the day, people are only going to help areas or places or people where they feel a connection to or where they feel a responsibility to. And so it's very difficult to, to do that without actually having access to a place. So, yeah. you know, we, we've, as Muscat Conservation, we've taken on a research, sorry, not a research, a project coordinator. And she's just joined us in the last couple of months to help us access more grant funding and so on and so forth. Because for the last couple of years, we've relied on probably about 70% of our operating costs from tourism. So we've we've sort of lost that overnight. So we have to look at uh, sort of, yeah, maybe becoming a bit creative or imaginative with, with our fundraising and, and yeah, just how we engage with potential donors and, and people who may otherwise have come to visit these areas. Oh. So it's it's certainly a challenge, Matt, but yeah, we, we enjoy a challenge. Absolutely. For want of a better term, time to make a plan. Eh? Time to make a plan, yeah. Exactly. I know you've you've been mentioning Musa Kesi throughout our conservation I mean throughout our conversation. Would you mind just giving us a little brief introduction to Musakesi and what Musakesi stands for? So Musakesi Conservation was established by myself and my one of my oldest friends and business partners, Tyrone McKeith. And we, when we established Jeffrey and McKeith Safaris, we, it was with a conservation objective. And we felt that we could do more for places like, well, specifically the Kafui through tourism, and that was our chosen avenue. We also enjoyed people, so it was a natural natural choice for us. But it was always with a long-term view to establish a conservation project of sorts in which we could use to give back to Kafui, to help further Kafui, and to help protect this incredible landscape. But I have to say it was 
it was a long-term plan, Matt. We were looking 10, 15 years down the line, you know, when once we'd become hopefully a, uh, a well-established safari operator that we could have the resources to put back. But we, you know, it was a, f a few years ago now, a couple of years ago, when we realized that actually it was a more pressing issue. And whether that was, you know, that's not specific to Zambia, I think across the continent or across the world, conservation yeah. issues were becoming more and more prominent and there was increasing pressure on wildlife and wild places. And so we brought those plans forward and uh, established Muscati Conservation about two years ago. So a lot sooner than we'd planned upon, but it was a much necessary or a much needed development. And yeah. essentially our focus has been on providing the national parks with the means and the resources to to effectively carry out their mandate of conserving wildlife and so it's it's building capacity so training more rangers providing rations and incentives patrol equipment training you know advanced training you know and yeah. so that's where we started and so we currently support three anti-poaching teams and a lot of our focus has been on law enforcement with, with just simply boots on the ground. But we, we're very much interested in, in the ecological side of things. We do a lot of work with fire and burning. You know, fire is a, is a major issue in, in the grasslands and the woodland areas here in the Kafu National Park with you know, the vast majority of the park burning on an annual basis. So we're trying to to, to change that and the habits there. And at least anecdotally, it, it seems to make a difference, but we want to back that up with some solid, solid research. So a big part of what we would like to do is, is on the, the research side of things. And apart from anything else, we, we need the research to monitor or to understand whether our interventions or conservation acti activities are, are actually having a positive impact after all anyway. So, Great. That's what I was going to ask you now. It's like in the short time that Muskesi has been operating and um, you've been supporting these ranges on the ground, have you seen, has there been any tangible evidences to like the effectiveness of it? Well, we, we teamed up with a partner organization called Panthera to train all our scouts in a monitoring tool, which we call the, the spatial monitoring and reporting tool or, or commonly known as smart and that uh, so every patrol comes back with a huge amount of information that we can map and analyze to see not only of legal activities but also of wildlife and certainly over the last six months we've seen a noticeable decrease in the in illegal activities so far fewer snares recovered far fewer poaching camps far fewer tracks and signs it's probably a bit too early to analyze the the wildlife outputs in terms of population numbers but we'd like to get stuck into that soon and actually just last week we received our research permit which is really exciting but it, it certainly at face value and or anecdotally you know the the there's a noticeable difference and i suppose the seven lion cubs I was with this evening is is tes testament to that in part, I guess. 
That's brilliant to hear, Phil. I could talk to you for a lot longer, but I'm pretty sure you've got a busy day tomorrow still with setting up your camp. Tell me, how is the park with, without any people in it effectively other than the operators at the moment? It's, I mean, we're, we're pretty isolated where we are, but it's, you know, it's, we're making every effort to, to get out into the field as often as we can, least of all, just to create a presence. It's, it's sad, Matt, you know, we, we, we get on well with a lot of other operators and, you know, we, we know lots of, lots of guides and managers and camps, which are, which are not opening or, you know, shut, shut up shop for the year ahead. Yeah. And a lot of questions over whether they'll reopen again or not. So it's certainly uncertain times. But um, the bush itself is looking magnificent. It's this is my favorite time of the year now when it's getting cold. The wildlife is, is just looking incredibly healthy after a, a bumper rainy season. Yeah. Lots of water in the lagoon. Yeah, it's it's... It's bittersweet. It's such a wonderful time of year, but we haven't got anyone to share it with at the moment. So, yeah, a tough one. Tough one. Well, hopefully it all comes right in the not-so-distant future and the sea bomb decides to, to leave us all and get on with things and get visitors back into these, these beautiful areas. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate um, this evening's conversation. No, pleasure, Matt. Uh, great, to, great to be in touch. And uh, yeah, doors are open and we look forward to, to welcome you guys up here um, when you can. To find out more about the work that Musikesi is doing, the link to their website is in the show notes. I've also left a link to the Safari Stories podcast, which Tyrone and Phil co-host together. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Conservation Storytelling. Um, If you did, follow, subscribe, share, or even better, leave a review. It all helps on this journey. Thanks once again, and remember to take time in nature, and I will catch you next week.